All right, well, good morning. Good to see you guys this morning. Um, this morning we are continuing in our series over the parables of Jesus. We are in Matthew chapter 22 this morning. Matthew chapter 22, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. Um, this is known as the parable of the wedding feast. The parable of the wedding feast. Uh, if you have copy of God's Word, we certainly invite you to open that, whether that's a physical copy, whether that's on your phone or your tablet or wherever it might be, we invite you to open God's Word. We, we prize God's Word here at Eastridge Baptist Church. We believe that it is God's Word that teaches us, and so we want to make sure that, that we go to God's Word, that we open God's Word, that we're reading God's Word together, and we're learning from God's Word as a church. So Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14 is where we are at this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will dive into today's message. Dear God, we thank You for this day. We thank You for the opportunity to gather together as the church, Lord. We thank You for the opportunity that we have to learn from Your Word, to learn Your will, God, from Your Word. And God, as we walk through this passage here this morning, we ask that, that You would be with us, that You would... Convict us where we need to be convicted, that You would teach us, Lord, that You would encourage us, God, that You would draw us to Yourself, Lord. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm reaching way back, all the way back to 1999, to a movie by the, entitled The Bachelor. It starred Chris O'Donnell and Renee Zellweger, and, and O'Donnell plays Jimmy, who's a bachelor. He, he just jumps from relationship to relationship. He never really settles down. He hasn't found the girl for him. He hasn't married. And his grandfather knows that this is not the best life for him. He knows that it's not going to provide him with, with ultimate fulfillment, that it's not going to, uh, it's going to leave him lonely and it's going to leave him wanting. Um, and so he talks to his grandson and he talks to him to, to no avail. He doesn't really listen to him. He doesn't take his advice at all. He doesn't find a woman and marry her and settle down. And his grandfather is also extremely wealthy. He owns a business and his grandfather decides that he's going to leave his inheritance to Jimmy. But there's a catch. There's always a catch. If there wasn't a catch, it wouldn't be a good movie. It wouldn't be one that you really want to you would really want to watch, right? In his will, he stipulates that his grandson must get married before his 30th birthday in order to inherit the money in order to inherit the company. And that request might seem reasonable if Jimmy's like in his 20s, he just graduated from high school, now he's in, in college, you know, maybe he's a freshman or sophomore, he's got plenty of women out there that he can meet in college, and uh, maybe, maybe it would be more reasonable if that were the case, but Jimmy is almost 30 years old when his grandfather passes. In fact, when his grandfather passes, he just has one day to meet the woman of his dreams, to convince her to marry him and to actually go through with the ceremony or he loses all of his inheritance. Now hearing that, you know, your opinions uh, of, of Jimmy's grandfather's stipulations are probably varied, right? Some of you are probably saying, yes, that is great. Like, tell your grandson what he needs to do. Give him the stipulation right on. 
Others of you, you're probably kind of on the fence. You're like, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe not. And then some of you have this strong opinion. You're like, no, I mean, I cannot believe that his grandfather would do that. I mean, it is Jimmy's life. It is Jimmy's life for him to live. He should be able to do what he wants, when he wants to do. I mean, why doesn't he just give him the money? Why doesn't he just give him the company? Now, while that might be your argument, while you might believe that is true, in reality, it is his grandfather's money. It is his grandfather's company, and he can put whatever stipulations on that that he wants, even though it is a bit extreme, even though it is a bit unorthodox. He can do what he wants with his money, with his company, and he's seeking his grandson's good after all. He knows that this lifestyle is not going to be one that ultimately fulfills him. And so in an unorthodox way, he is seeking to help his grandson come to this realization. And you know, God does the same for us. God knows what is best for us, but God doesn't keep that to himself. Instead, God tells us what's best in his word. He reveals his will to us to warn us what will happen if we don't live according to his will. Not only does he warn us in his word, but he also puts people in, his li- in our life to, to teach us, to guide us, to hold us accountable to his word. But even though God goes to great lengths to help guide us and and to help direct us, we often choose to do things our own way. We often choose to live according to our own understanding. And so why do we do that? Why do we do that? Why do we continue to live according to our own understanding when it's clearly not good for us? And what happens to those who reject God's will, His wisdom, for their own way of doing things. Well, Jesus is going to answer these questions for us in this third parable of this current series of parables that we're in. If you remember way back to chapter 20 and 21, the chief priests and the elders, they uh, confront Jesus with the question and they're seeking to figure out what authority is he doing all of these things that he's doing with. And they ulti- they try to trap him, but ultimately their trap does not does not uh, it actually ends up failing. And so instead of letting them walk away, Jesus goes on the offensive, not to, not to beat them up or anything like that, but Jesus goes on the offensive because he wants, to, he wants them to repent. So he wants to give them the opportunity to do that. Now we've explored the first two parables in this series, the parable of the Son, we've explored the parable of the tenants, and, and this week we're going to look at the third and final parable, which is the parable of the wedding feast. And so Jesus, in this parable, he compares the kingdom of heaven to a king who prepares a wedding feast for his son. So look at verses 1 through 3 with me. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not have come. And so as his son's wedding was near, the, the, the king sends his servants out to the guests to call them to the feast. Now, shockingly, the people, they, they said, well, well we're not, we're not going to come. And these were not just, just random people that, that they went to. I mean, these are people who practically have RSVP'd to come to this wedding feast. They had, they had agreed to come. They had agreed to be part of the wedding. And somewhere between their initial agreement and the day of the wedding feast, they have changed their mind. When the servants come to, to call them to the feast, they refuse 
to come. I mean, could you imagine that happening at your wedding? Most of you here are probably married. Imagine going through all of the planning process with everything that, that is involved there. Imagine pouring over the guest list, sending out all these invitations to people. Right, all of your friends, all of your family. Then you, then you start getting these RSVPs back and you start getting excited like, okay, great, all of my friends, all of my family are going to be here to, to celebrate this day with me. You can't wait to see everyone. And the day of the wedding comes. Everything is prepared. The venue's decorated. You're decked out in your suit or your dress, depending on whether you're the bride or, or the groom. You arrive at the venue, and then all of a sudden, you start receiving these text messages from your friends and your family, the folks who have RSVP'd and said, we're going to come, and they're saying, we're not going to be able to make it today. We're not coming to your wedding. We have something else going on, something else that we want to take care of. We don't want to really want to get off of the couch. It's too cold outside. It's too hot outside. Whatever it may be, we cannot make it. Essentially, that's what's happening here. I mean, they didn't have text message back then, but the people just flat out refused to come when, when the servants went out to bring them back to the wedding feast. But the people who were initially invited refused. They refused to come. So what does the king going to do about this look at verse 4 again he sent out other servants saying tell those who are invited see i have prepared my dinner my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready come to the wedding feast he sends his servants out again and he doesn't have his servants just just tell them to come this time he, he goes and, and he says tell them all of the things that i have prepared everything is ready how how i've how i've done everything for them Tell them about all of that so that they might come and enjoy the fruit of my labors. How do they respond? And hearing all of the stuff that the king has done for them, how he has readied everything, how do they respond? Verses 5 and 6. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treating them shamefully and killed them. And so some ignored them and they paid no attention to the king at all. They went off and they did, their, they did their own thing. They attended to their own business. Some, they actually seized these servants. They treated them shamefully. They even killed them. Now, now not coming to a wedding that you RSVP'd for, I mean, that's one thing. But, but seizing somebody, treating them shamefully, even, even killing somebody, coming to invite you to the wedding that you actually said that you were going to come to is a bit extreme and, and a bit beyond strange. So I couldn't imagine that happening. You probably can't imagine that happening either, which kind of clues us into the idea that, that something else is going on here. Something else is at play. Jesus is using this imagery of a beyond belief scene not only to teach those whom he is speaking, but also to teach us. And so what's Jesus' point? Well, if you've been tracking with us through the parables that we've gone through so far, uh, you've probably figured out that the king represents, represents God. The guests, they represent you know, the I Israel and the religious leaders, the wedding feast is the kingdom, and the servants, they are the prophets. And so what Jesus is doing, once again, is He's depicting Israel's history. He is pointing out to them how they have forgotten all of what God 
has done for them. They have forgotten that, that God is the one who has made them into a great nation. That God is the one who has brought them out of bondage in Egypt. That, that He is the one who gave them a land to call their own. That He is consistently giving them military victory after military victory. And forgetting all that God has done for them. They have, they have forsaken God. They have chased after idols and other gods. And while God has remained faithful to them, while He has kept, their prom- while he has kept His promise, while He has sent prophet after prophet after prophet to them, calling them back to enjoy His blessings. They have continued to run away from God. Sure, there's been times in their history when they have come back to the Lord, where they have repented and they have turned to Him, but, but by and large, the consistent theme of Israel is that they have, they have run from the Lord to other gods. And you know, that hasn't changed in Jesus' day. The people in Jesus' day, they are still doing the same thing. God's not only sent prophets to them, but God has actually sent His Son, the second member of the Trinity. God Himself has come from heaven to the people to call them back to Himself, to call them back to follow Him. And even with Jesus there, they continue to reject the Lord. They continue to live how they want to live. And you know, we're, we're no different like the Israelites, we have a tendency to forget that God is a benevolent heavenly Father who calls us to an abundant life. And, and the times that we often forget that are in times of plenty. When things are not going well, we're, we, run, we run to God, we, we go to Him, we, we pray to Him, we go to whoever it is that we know and we ask them to, to pray for us. We want God to deliver, but, but when God has delivered, in times of plenty, in times of abundance, we forget the Lord. One, one author I read recently captures this point well when he says, of course, most of us have an easier time believing that God created the universe in the past than that He has provided us with everything we have in the present. This is especially true when we think of personal paychecks and college diplomas, which God tends to give us after periods of hard work and personal exertion. The Bible teaches that it is never easier to forget about God than after He has richly blessed us. Affluence can produce a spiritual amnesia while our society teaches us to keep careful catalogs of our accomplishments. The Bible reminds us that everything on our personal resume belongs to God for the power of productivity itself comes from Him. You see, instead of forgetting God, instead of turning to our own understanding, we need to remember that God has given us all that we have. That He is the one who has blessed us richly. That He calls us to a kingdom where we can live an abundant life. That He is the one who has made the way for us to be a part of this kingdom. Instead of rejecting God, instead of turning to and living by our own understanding, we should praise, we should worship, we should follow the Lord. The Israelites did not do that. The religious leaders in Jesus' day, they did not do that. Instead, they turned from the Lord to live how they wanted to live. And how does God respond when we turn from Him, when we seek our own will? Well, let's see what the king does in verses 7 and 8. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers, burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. So that we see. The king's welcome, it it turns to 
a rejection. Not, not only a rejection, but destruction. He sends his army out against them. And, God, and likewise, God rejects those who turn from him to live according to their own understanding. He rejects those who are more attracted to the world than, than to his kingdom. Who, who believe the world offers more satisfaction and more meaning than living for him. And the sad thing is, is that, that the world doesn't ultimately, the world is not ultimately able to fulfill these promises. It doesn't offer meaning and, and fulfillment, ultimate meaning and fulfillment. It doesn't offer us ultimate satisfaction. It doesn't offer us a perfectly prepared kingdom. The world promises these things. The world promises meaning and, and fulfillment. All you have to do is turn on the television or open a social media app. But, but if we've learned anything through this pandemic, it is that the world cannot deliver on its promises. It can't make things happen. But God, on the other hand, God can and God will and God does deliver on his promises what he says he will do he does nothing even even a worldwide pandemic can keep god from hosting his feast in the kingdom to come if those who are initially invited won't show up to the feast god will find others to be a part of his kingdom and that's exactly what happens See, after rejecting this first group who represent Israel and the religious leaders, the king sends his servants to anyone whom they can find. And when they, when they invite them, they're to invite them without discriminating. Instead, they were to invite anyone and everyone that they came across. And that's exactly what they did. They invited anyone and everyone to the party. Look at verses 9 and 10. And go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. You see, the king instructed the servants to go invite anybody. It didn't matter who they were. It didn't matter if they were considered to be good people or, or if they were considered to be bad people. Whether they had their lives put together, whether they were Israelites or not, the servants were to go and they were to invite anyone that they came across in the road. And as a result, the servants' work, we we are told that the wedding hall is filled with guests. And Jesus is teaching us that, that He will build His kingdom, that, that nothing will stop Him from building His kingdom. Not a pandemic, not Satan, not the idols of the world. Nothing will stop the kingdom from growing. Nothing will keep people from the feast at the end of the age when Jesus returns. There will be people who enter into the feast. There will be people from every single nation. And how does Jesus ensure this feast is full? How does He do that? Well, Jesus uses us as His instruments. Just like the servants in the parable went out and, then they, and they were to invite anyone without discriminating who they came across, we should do the same. We shouldn't look for those whom we might consider to be good people and say, well, this person over here, man, they seem like a really great person. Let me invite them into the kingdom. Certainly they will be the ones who respond. But these people over here, they seem bad. They're not the type of people that I really want to associate with or, or ever would talk to. And so I'm not going to invite them. That's not what Jesus tells us to do. We are to go and we are to invite anyone and everyone to the feast. And people will respond. You see, our job isn't to determine who is worthy to enter the feast. Instead, our job isn't to invite others to the feast. 
and people we never imagined will be sitting around the table with us in the kingdom to come. You know, I once knew this guy, he was, he was selfish, he did things his own way, he did things to please himself, he disrespected authority, rebellion against the system, he hated other people and did things to make people's lives miserable. He was a racist, a liar, a cheater, he objectified women, but you know, someone shared the gospel with him. And through that, that person's witness, Jesus got a hold of him. Jesus changed his heart so that now he follows the Lord. He desires to, to do things according to God's Word, to spread his gospel. And you know who that person is? That person is me. I am that horrible, terrible person that God saved. And you know, each and every single one of us should have a similar story. Each and every one of us probably think that we are, we are good. Probably think that we are great, that we are helpful people, but, but really, if we haven't turned to the Lord, if Jesus hasn't made us righteous, as we will see here in a moment, no matter what good works you do, no matter how great of a citizen you are, you still are a horrible, terrible person because you have rejected the Lord. You have rebelled against God, and every breath that you take apart from Christ is rebellion against God. It is you sitting on the throne of your heart as the king instead of allowing God to sit on the throne of your heart as, his, as your king. See, God is the king. God is the one who we should submit ourselves to. We shouldn't think that God only saves Good people, because God saves people like you, and God saves people like me. If God only saved good people, then He would save no one, because none of us are good. None of us are really savable. But thankfully, God doesn't just save those whom society deems to be good. God saves all kinds of people, and each and every one of us who have professed faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior, we are a testament to that. And so we shouldn't discriminate as if we know who is going to believe the gospel and who is not going to believe the gospel. Every one of us rebelled against God at one point or another, and God changed our hearts so that we would believe in Him, and we believe that Jesus is our Savior. And we, so we should share the gospel with all peoples. And as we spread the gospel, people will respond, just like those in this parable responded. The, the wedding hall was full of guests after the servants went out and shared and, and invited people in. The key, though, is that we have to spread the gospel indiscriminately. We have to call people to follow Jesus, even people that we think would never respond to the gospel. And we can see that Jesus will call them to Himself and that Jesus will fill His wedding hall. And why are we able to follow Jesus? In other words, what makes it possible for us to enter into the wedding feast? I just said that we are wretched, miserable sinners. And so what makes it possible for us to enter into the wedding feast? Everyone was invited, good and bad, and, and many who were good and bad responded. Well, as we look at this, starting in verse 11, we see that as the king comes in to survey the wedding feast, as he comes in to survey all of the guests who have come, there's one person who grabs his attention. Look at verse 11. And when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, 
Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in the place, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And so just as there are today, there were expectations when you go to a wedding. There are expectations of the wedding guests of, of what, they might, what they might wear. We, they don't wear tuxes or, or suits or anything like that back then, but instead they would wear this clean white garment, this wedding garment. And normally if, if you showed up to the wedding without, without the wedding garment on the proper attire, the attendants who were at the door, they would not allow you to come in. But somehow, some way, this man, he makes it in. But he was the first person that the king noticed because he wasn't wearing the wedding attire. He stuck out like a sore thumb. He didn't have on this clean white garment. And so what does the king do? Well, the king immediately goes over to this man who is there. He approaches him and he questions him and he asks him, how did you get in? How were you not kicked out? And the man is speechless. He has no words to say. He has nothing to say for himself as to how he made it in. And this man, he, he didn't just get kicked out of the wedding after this. No, this man got bound hand and foot and he was cast into outer darkness. In other words, this man ends up in hell. And that seems a bit extreme again. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what is, what is going on? What is Jesus trying to teach us? Certainly, you know, if you showed up to a, a wedding without the wrong, with the wrong clothes on, you're not going to get cast into, into hell. And so what's going on here? What is Jesus trying to teach us? Well, Jesus is teaching us that Though everyone is invited into the kingdom, you can't enter in your own way. None of us are good enough to enter into the kingdom on our own merit. Our, our own works will not do. Our goodness will not do. Our money and giving will not do. None of us are good enough to enter into the kingdom on our own. We need a covering. And Jesus is the one who provides that covering. We're not given a white garment. Instead, what we are given is Jesus' own blood. And that means that the Son is not only being honored at the wedding feast, but He is also the way into the feast. You see, Jesus covers us in righteous robes. In Isaiah, He, he images this covering as, as He points to the servant to come in Isaiah 61. We read this during our Scripture reading time this morning. Just verses 10 and 11. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. You see, Jesus is the servant that Isaiah speaks about, starting in, verse, starting in chapter 53 of, of Isaiah. And he works all the way through that, talking about the servant who is to come and, and what he is going to do. And we see here in, in Isaiah 61, Jesus makes us righteous. Jesus makes us righteous by giving his life for our life. He pays the penalty that we owe. He takes his, our debt on himself. You see, the wages of sin is death, which means that Jesus dies in our place. And when we believe in Jesus, His righteousness is actually credited to our account so that we become righteous in the Father's eyes. 
And notice also what happens to those whom Jesus covers. We end up doing righteous works for the king. That last line there in Isaiah 61, So the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Believing in Jesus is not just belief for belief's sake. Our belief, our covering, it should also end up resulting in righteous deeds. That means that that following Jesus means that we actually follow in Jesus' footsteps. If you're here today and you call yourself a believer, if you call yourself a a follower of Jesus, it's not just mental assent that you have to have. No, you believe in Jesus and you live as Jesus lived. You seek to learn how to do that. You, you, You learn His will in His Word and it is His will in His Word that you seek to follow. You have others who, who help you to do that by encouraging you and, and, and teaching you and holding you accountable to live according to God's Word. See, if you profess faith in Jesus, you don't just add Jesus to your life. Jesus becomes your life. Following Him becomes your life. He's not an addition to your will. Instead, His will becomes your will. You work for the King. You operate according to the King's ways. And not only does Jesus' covering result in righteous work, but those whom Jesus covers, they, they praise Him for making them righteous. And those who have been saved by Jesus, those who are truly humbled by the salvation that, that He provides, who understand the Gospel and the fact that they did not add anything to their salvation, that they were completely and utterly unworthy to enter into the kingdom. But God comes. He comes to earth as a man and He dies in our place to save us. Those who truly grasp that, they will praise the Lord. They won't be cold towards Him. They won't be grumpy and unhappy and joyless people. I know that you've met people like that. People who are just grumpy and, and joyless just all of the time. There are people like that in the world. There are, there are people like that in, in the church. And, and of course, we all have our bad days. We all have our bad weeks. We all have bad months. But, but those who are consistently joyless, I question whether they truly know the Savior. Those who truly understand the covering that Jesus provides, they will, they will burst forth in praise to Him. They will be joyful people. See, when we when we think about the salvation that Jesus provides, when you think about the salvation that Jesus provides, does it cause you to want to to praise Him? Do your affections well up inside of you towards the Savior? Are you eternally thankful for the salvation that He has wrought in your life? If you have been covered with Jesus, by Jesus, praise and worship Him. And so we see that that those who reject God's will and wisdom, those who are, who are seeking to live according to their own will and their own wisdom, they can't enter the kingdom. The only way that, that you're able to enter into the kingdom is to humble yourself and to realize that you need to be covered by Jesus and realizing that His covering provides entrance into this eternal kingdom should cause you to break out in praise towards Him. It should cause you to want to live a righteous life to please Him, to praise Him through your obedience. 
You see, living according to your own will might, might seem great in the moment. You might think that you are powerful and that you are, you are smart and that you are a step above everyone else. The world might even praise you for doing your own thing. They might even praise you and lift you up and make something of you. But that is only momentary. Those who reject God's will and God's way of salvation will be bound hand and foot and they will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so where are you at this morning? Are you still trying to work your own way into the kingdom by doing your own thing? Do you think that you can enter into the feast on your own merit and your own works and your own goodness? Or has God shown you that you need His Son? Has He worked in your life so that you recognize what a miserable wretch you actually are? Have you repented of your sin against God, your desire to be the King of your own life? Have you turned to Jesus believing that He is your Lord and is your Savior? Have you, have you been made righteous by Jesus? Where are you at this morning? My prayer is that you have forsaken your own will for God's will. And that you've turned to Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior this morning. And if you've turned to Him this morning, is an opportunity for you to respond by living righteously. Not to earn your salvation, but, but out of the salvation that you have been given, as well as it is an opportunity for you to praise and worship the Lord for the salvation that He has brought to your life. And if you haven't turned to Him, well, well what better time than to do that then this morning. If you'd like to publicly profess your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we're going we're gonna to sing here in a moment and be an opportunity for you to do that. I'll be standing down front. If you still have questions, if you want to talk more, I'd be happy to talk with you. Both Ryan and I stand at the back at the end of the service and we'd be happy to, to speak with you more or grab some coffee or lunch this week and talk more about Jesus and the Gospel. And if you just need some time with the Lord to pray, you can do that in your seats or you can come and kneel up here as well. My prayer though is that you would respond to this message this morning. To praise Him. To live obedient lives. Or to turn to Him as your Lord and as your Savior. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank You for this day and this opportunity, Lord, to gather together, to open Your Word, to hear from it, Lord. God, to hear that, that we should be people who live according to Your will, who praise You, who worship You for what You have done for us. Lord, I ask that that would be the case in our life. That we would, if we call ourselves a believer in Jesus, that we would actually follow Jesus. And Lord, for those who may not know You, who are maybe here this morning or watching online, I ask God that You would work in their hearts this morning. That You would draw them to Yourself, Lord. That You would save them today, God. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.